If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 38 to 42 this morning. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. We've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We looked for a number of months at the Beatitudes, and then now we've been looking at Jesus' statement that we need greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees had. We've been seeing how Jesus points to a law from the Old Testament and says, look, they used to depend on a law to change their hearts. But actually, if your heart is changed and you belong in the kingdom of God, here's what your life should look like. Not just external conformity, but internal, inward transformation and change. And so this week we come to a very famous saying in Matthew 5, 38. Read with me God's word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Lord, we know this is your word, and now we ask for you to meet us here. Would you come in and speak to our hearts? And I pray that this act of declaring your word and receiving your word would be an act of worship. Help us to worship our way through this text. Uh, I pray your Holy Spirit would show us how to apply this to our lives, and we would leave different than we came this morning because of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how do you respond to conflict? How do you respond when somebody wrongs you? What happens in your heart? As a therapist friend of ours and someone we see as a family asks us, almost every time we see her, she says, give me two feeling words. What feelings come up in you when you're wronged or offended or hurt or when there's conflict in your life? What, what thoughts fill your mind? What actions do you respond with when you're wronged and you're in the middle of conflict? In our text this morning, Jesus is teaching us how those in the kingdom of God can respond to wrong and conflict. Now, let's be sure, we can expect to be wronged in this life. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us when evil people wrong us, or even people we love wrong us, or we find ourselves in conflict in relationships in our family, among our friends, in our churches, conflict is going to happen. But when we're wrong, whose terms are we going to fight on? We're going to fight on their terms, we're going to respond the way they wronged us, or are we willing to overlook offenses at times? Are we trigger happy, ready to hurl insults back, or are we willing to absorb some things and overlook some things? What kind of posture do we have when we're wrong? Jesus is inviting us to find better ways to resolve conflict that we will inevitably find ourselves in in this life. I think the main idea from this text that we're going to look at this morning is that we can endure wrongs with humility rather than revenge. We can endure wrongs with humility rather than revenge. Jesus is going to give us four examples in this passage, and I think it's important to say, first, let's all acknowledge, at times they seem a little wild and far-fetched. Like, does he really want me to do that? The answer is yes, but 
Jesus is teaching in the genre that you might know like wisdom literature, if you read the Proverbs. If you know anything about the Proverbs, you know that those are not a list of rules, conditional statements. If you do this, then this will always be the outcome. They're generally true principles for life. In the illustrations Jesus gives in this text this morning, the same principle applies. He's not saying in every situation, no matter what, you should always do this and this will always be the outcome. Instead, he's giving us intentionally far-fetched, hyperbole, over-exaggerated statements to prove a point about our posture as followers of Jesus. So together this morning, we're gonna see five ways to respond to conflict. We're gonna see that we can respond to wrongs by getting even. We can respond to wrongs by bearing the burden. We can respond to wrongs by releasing our rights. We can respond to wrongs by serving selflessly, and we can respond to wrongs by giving generously. So our first point this morning, let's dive in. We can, first, we can respond to wrongs by getting even. That's the heart of the law in verse 38, that he says, you've heard it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is what's referred to as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And it's not just found in scripture, it's found all over the ancient world. It is one of the most ancient laws in human history. Almost every ancient human civilization had a law similar to this, and we can find it in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And it was used in the context of slave and master relationships, which is to say a boss and an employee. It was used in if someone was injured or if someone injured a pregnant woman and what would happen to the baby? Was the baby injured or even died? What, what would happen if two people were fighting or if somebody injured another person just as civilians and uh, neighbors? But this law was not meant to promote revenge. This law was actually meant to hold it back. So if someone did gouge your eye out, you couldn't retaliate by murdering them. It was meant to control retribution and regulate justice. It was meant to allow for proportional justice, and it was intended to keep re retaliation in check, not serve as an excuse to go pursue more retaliation or used as a law to say you must go pursue retaliation if someone wronged you. That's not at all what the law was saying. One writer this week said that this law, this lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was intended to be a dam holding back the river of violence and vengeance that flows from our hearts. We know vengeance can flow from our hearts, right? Maybe not all in the same way. Maybe some of us are very extroverted and have a very outward temper that flares, but some of us may not seem like we will pursue retribution and vengeance in response, but we can be a silent killer. Treating people as though they're dead to us because of something that they've done. Holding grudges for years. So what ways do we want to respond to someone who's wronged us by trying to get even, repaying evil for evil? I think there's a lot of ways, and it's not just violent ways. I think some of it's interpersonal. I think this can happen in marriages or as parents. This can happen at work. 
But Jesus, remember what he's saying in all of these passages in the Sermon on the Mount. He's now saying that we don't need a law to measure out our retaliation. Rather, we need hearts that give us a new posture towards people who wrong us. We don't have to respond to wrongs by trying to get even. And the first example he gives is in verse 39. A very famous saying, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And that brings us to our next way that we can respond to wrongs. We can respond to wrongs by bearing the burden. Now, this first illustration, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Some logic here leads us to believe that maybe the slap was backhanded because most people are right-handed and if they're slapping you on the right cheek, they must be backhand slapping you. And if you've ever been slapped, you know the physical pain is the uh, least important part of that act. It is insulting. I mean, if someone was really trying to physically harm you, they might do something other than slap you. And this was certainly true in the first century. Uh, A slap is not so much about physical harm as it was disrespectful and shameful and insulting. But do you see how Christ invites us to respond? Turn the other cheek. Now, does this mean Jesus is saying, if someone hits you, you ought to stand and turn the other way so they can hit you at a better angle? I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that he's inviting us to respond in a way that doesn't make us stoop to their level of insult. Replace the word slap with insult. If someone insults you, Jesus is saying don't respond by throwing an insult back at them. Don't respond to an insult with another insult. In my years of serving with Al here at Shalford, Al Gilbert, he, I heard him talk and teach, counsel me on marriage many times. One of the things he would talk about in marriage is what he would call the crazy cycle. The crazy cycle goes something like this. One spouse expects or wants another thing from the other spouse, whether that be love or uh, just more conversation and respect and, hey, I think you just ought to care about me in this way. And then they don't get it. So then what does that spouse do? Well, they don't give to the other spouse something that they want. So maybe a husband wants respect and and honor and the wife wants love and tenderness and the husband doesn't feel like he's getting respected so he doesn't give the wife attention and care and gentleness and then so she says well you're not giving me so I'm not going to give you the any sort of respect because you're not love and thus the crazy cycle begins and never ends it's the crazy cycle and he would say in marriage somebody needs to break the crazy cycle someone needs to give something even if they're not getting anything Now, we know the crazy cycle doesn't just exist in marriage, right? We know it exists, I think we've all been kids at one point, or you're still a kid, or you're still a kid at heart. We all know the famous words, he started it. He started it. She started it. Hey, get your hands off of her. No, he hit me first. Uh, Nice deflection. But (laughs) your hands were on her. Your hands were on him. She started it, and now you're on the same plane because you continued it. What Jesus is inviting us to in this first illustration is something that actually he embodied. What did Jesus do when he was insulted and mocked? Look at Isaiah 50, 
Isaiah is in the middle of writing these servant songs, painting a picture of what God's coming Savior servant was going to look like. And in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7, here's what God's word says. It's from the perspective of God's servant, who was going to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Or Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 to 44. Jesus on the cross. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus was mocked and reviled, insulted, and derided on the cross. He was made fun of for his apparent weakness. He was spit on, humiliated, shamed. And Jesus endured those wrongs. He bore the burden of what other people were doing. Now, let's be sure of a couple things. One, Christ could have easily come down from the cross. That would have abandoned the entire mission that he came for. The mission of God in sending Jesus required him to be insulted, to withstand slaps and much worse. So if we're going to throw out Matthew 5.39 and say, not nah, the whole turn the cheek thing, I can't do it. I've got to stand up for myself. Then we must throw out the way our Savior paved for us. But let's also say, on the other hand, that Jesus did not endure these wrongs just because he wanted to let evil go untouched. He was actually not at all willing for evil to continue in the world he created. But he knew if he was going to fix evil once and for all, it would take much more than coming down off a cross when they threatened him. It would come in a way that was required so much more than responding insult to insult. It would actually come with him receiving those insults, staying on the cross, which required so much more power than coming down off of it. Rather than jumping off the cross and exerting his strength, he showed greater power, staying on and enduring the pain. What Hebrews 12.2 says, despising the shame, all to bring true salvation to the evil, wicked people who insulted him. Christ has paved the way for us here. So rather than responding to an insult, responding to wrongs in our life with another insult, perpetuating the crazy cycle, there are times we can and should bear the burden in the way Christ did. I think of the verse that says, love covers a multitude of sins. When someone wrongs you, you know what sometimes is the most powerful thing for you to do to them? Respond with smiles and love and forgiveness. Move towards them with grace and humility. And oftentimes that will be the conflict diffuser that you need is to turn the other cheek and say, I, you have wounded me. That did hurt. 
do you know I still love you? You know I still move towards you with redemptive grace? Now again, this is a wisdom saying. This is not saying in every situation you ought to always move towards someone that's hurt you. But what Jesus is saying is, what's your posture? Is this even an option for you? Or is the only option to retaliate with the same kind of thing they meted out to you? Are we even willing to overlook offenses and bear the burden? And the next way Jesus invites us to respond is responding to wrongs by releasing our rights. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What in the world? I don't have a tunic or a cloak, so you're out of luck if you sue me. Exodus 20, it was a joke, a little, I feel like Al already, got to tell you guys when to laugh. Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24, God specifically forbids taking somebody's cloak overnight because it would make them essentially homeless. It was the thing that people could cover up and sleep in. It protected them. They were so attached to their coat. The only modern day equivalent I could think of was it would be so heinous as taking someone's iPhone. It was unthinkable, really, to take someone's cloak because it would have been inhumane to tell someone they would have to go overnight without their cloak. So this context here about suing, it was probably talking about collateral damage, like almost like bail, like, hey, you'll get this back, but for now I need to hold on to this until we finish this lawsuit. So there would have been actually great legal right and precedence for you to say, no, I'm definitely not giving up my cloak. If you want to sue me and take my tunic, okay, but you'll never take my cloak from me. But then Jesus is giving a shocking illustration to actually willingly offer up the thing we have the legal right to hold on to. Did you hear that? He's telling us to willingly offer up the thing we have a legal right to hold on to. We can freely hold our rights as human beings and our legal rights with an open hand. If someone takes all that we have and all that we have a right to, we who are in Christ know we have greater possessions. The only reason we would keep our hands tight around something is if we're afraid we'll never get anything else or anything better. But what Jesus is inviting us to see is that even if you take something on this earth, you do have a legal right to. That is good for you. That people should have. And we should stand up for the rights for other people to keep those things. If someone takes that from you, you have much greater possessions than that. Now, again, he's giving wisdom statements. So he's not saying forever, every time, always, in every circumstance. Jesus does not expect any of us to walk home in our underwear because someone decides to sue us and take our outer tunic, our cloak, and take all the clothes we have. But again, he wants our posture to be that that we're willing to endure wrongs. We're willing to pursue peace. We're willing to find eternal contentment in God alone so that we'd be willing to hold with an open hands the things we actually have a right to. A writer this week that I read said we should have a radically unselfish attitude to our rights and our property. Again, I couldn't help but think of Jesus in this way. What rights did our Savior have as the eternally begotten Son of God, having endured eternal fellowship within the Trinity with God the Father, God the Spirit, 
ruling over everything. Not just present, but active in the act of creation. He knows everything. He is worshiped by the angels in heaven with all the praise that's due to him. And what did he give up to come and become a baby and grow up and live the life we live? I mean, surely he gave up all sorts of things he could have quote unquote demanded. Now this seems crazy to talk about Jesus in this way, but it makes sense in the context of where we are in Matthew 5. What if Jesus would have demanded his rights? What if he had had enough of all this suffering, all this being hungry, all this thirsty, all this going to the bathroom and sleeping outside and dealing with these rough people? He just wanted his heavenly, glorious throne back. What if that's how Jesus had thought? But he didn't. He laid aside his eternal glory in heaven to become a human being. And following in the way of Jesus, being invited to hold with an open hand those things we call rights, I know a few things in our country that will set people off like talking about rights, what we have the right to do, what we have the freedom to do. And I think rights are a great thing. I think we ought to stand up for the rights of all people because all people are made in the image of God. I think God wants all people to have certain rights just based on that status as image bearers. But what Jesus is talking about in this context is not that we should let evil go who are attacking people for not having rights. What he's talking about is the individual saying, are you willing to suffer and endure wrong? Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is kind of an outworking of that. Did you know you're going to be persecuted? Did you know you're going to suffer wrong? Did you know people will try to take your rights? Can you live that with joy? Saying, you can have my tunic and my cloak. I am clothed in something far greater. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, something you can never take from me, and I will have it for all eternity. Whatever we lose in this life, whatever is taken from us, will be restored a hundredfold in eternity in the kingdom of God. Our hope is not to regain what we've lost here in this life is to gain far more than we could ever imagine in the next. And so our third way to respond to wrongs in the way of Jesus is to respond by serving selflessly. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's verse 41. In the first century, the land of Israel, Judea and Samaria, was ruled by Rome and Rome occupied a military occupation of this entire land. That's why we see so much overlap between uh, the Gospels and you see so many Roman names. You see Roman tax collectors. Rome is very present and not enjoyed by the Jews of the day. And there was a law and a custom that Roman soldiers could force Jewish citizens into a kind of temporary forced labor. And being soldiers, they would have equipment and gear and packs, and they could enforce uh, this law that would say, hey, you're a citizen, and so we're going to actually force you to come and carry my stuff for a certain uh, period of time, a certain length, like a mile or so. So stop what you're doing. I don't care that you're heading home, you're working, taking, taking care of your family. You're going to actually come, and I know you hate me. You hate that I'm here. You think I'm unfairly occupying the land that's yours. 
I'm oppressive to you, uh, you're actually going to have to put your whole life on hold to come and serve me for a mile and carry my stuff. That's the context in which Jesus is speaking in Matthew 5, 41. If someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Jesus is inviting them to consider that the enemy they wouldn't move an inch for, maybe we ought to do double for. Now look, next week we're going to talk about the passage Justin is actually going to preach for us, and we're going to look at this saying, love your enemies. But we've got to at least touch on it here because that's what he's talking about. Rome would be an enemy, and I can only imagine the disciples of Jesus. Let me imagine my response. Okay, Jesus, I get we shouldn't commit adultery. I get we shouldn't murder people. And I get those things, anger and lust in our hearts, but now you're telling me to serve my enemies? You've gone too far with this righteousness. That sounds unbelievable, Jesus. And when I try to modernize this and consider our own enemies, or maybe a better word for us would be rivals, gosh, who are we unwilling to serve because of their status in the world? Are there people in the world, in your community, in this church, in your neighborhood, in your family, that you would never help, much less tolerate their presence, that you would never serve, that you would never do more than what was absolutely legally required of you for them? But do you know what Jesus did? Read Romans 5, verses 6 to 11 with me. While we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here's the money line for where we are. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This passage says while we were weak, while we were sinners, which look up what a sinner is, set against God. While we were enemies, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ pursued, loved, and saved us. No wonder Jesus is inviting us here that if our enemy forces us to go a mile, we could happily go too because we know how Jesus treated us while we were his enemies. We didn't even force him to go one mile. We didn't believe him at all. We weren't even around to ask him. Salvation was not our idea. We recognized the plight we were in and we wrote a letter saying, only you can help. No, we were happily dead in our sin. We were happily separated from God and he pursued to love and to save us. So when we follow Jesus, he frees us to respond to wrongs and evil by actually serving our enemies. But in verse 42, he kind of takes a little different tone. I gotta admit, I had a little bit of a hard time with this because it's all these 
if your enemy is asking you to do these things or if this bad thing happens to you. But then verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is saying that we can respond to wrongs by giving generously. Commentators even have different perspective on this last illustration. Was he just talking about begging in general? Or in the context of this passage, is he saying an evil person is trying to exploit and take advantage of you? Maybe someone is trying to take advantage of their identity as a follower of Jesus, that you're supposed to be so generous, so why don't you give me, I don't know, everything you have? And then they're going to hold this verse over their head and say, well, you really ought to do it. One writer and preacher said that this refers to Luke 6, 34 to 35. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. A true follower of Jesus is marked by selfless generosity. Maybe especially in the face of wrongs. Have you ever considered that giving, that being generous, can resolve conflict? Again, not in every circumstance, but applying God's wisdom, seeking God's spirit, we must consider that this is one of the ways Jesus wants us to respond when we are wronged, when we are sinned against, is to respond with generosity. Now, I've been on the receiving end of some great generosity in my life, a lot of that from my own family. Um, My grandparents, my parents, I feel like have been so generous to me, and then even beyond my family. But I have received some gifts that are the opposite of Luke 6 in my life. They were not given uh, expecting nothing in return. And I've only found that out in recent days. Someone this week that I was talking to said to me, um, as we were in a conversation and I was trying to understand where they were and I was admittedly frustrated, trying to get him to come out with some more truth and help me to understand. And he got frustrated I was asking questions. He said, where's the comfort? Uh, and he, here's, where his, here's his words. I've only ever given to you ever since I first known you. Now what does that have to do with this? That's a real creative way to say, I don't want to answer your questions. And in that moment, a uh, reality hit me. Oh, you didn't give to me. You loaned to me money that you wanted back, not in exchange of more money, but you wanted back in exchange of a certain kind of overlooking of offense. That kind of giving will never bring the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. That is not what Jesus is inviting us to. Giving to kind of control people. The truest example of this has got to be, again, Jesus. While he's truly and fully God, he's also truly and fully man. But by being truly and fully God, it means he's limitless. So he gives freely and unreservedly to us. His grace is an unlimited fountain that overflows to us, and we can never diminish his supply when we come and beg for more. 
I'm in a little care group with Jonathan and Ethan. We just started reading Gentle and Lowly. If you have not read that or you do not have a copy, we have them in the back to give away to you for absolutely free. And he talks about this principle, that when you come to Jesus and are in need and ask for things, he is not diminished or grumpy by your asking. It brings him joy for you to ask. And you actually never diminish his supply of what you're asking for because he's limitless. He overflows in generosity towards you. He is never sad that you're there to take another withdrawal on his grace and mercy for help in time of need. He is excited that you have finally recognized that he has unlimited supply to give to you, to supply for your needs. From that book, Gentle and Lowly, he talks about he's not just have unlimited resources. He also has a heart that loves to give those things. He wants to be our help and our hope. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2 with me. Looking to Jesus, we're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but bear with me. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, for the sake of joy, endured wrong so that he could give us the gift of salvation, being the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured wrong in order to give generously. So have you ever considered that giving in generosity can resolve conflict? Do you have an attitude of generosity about you? Has Christ begun to form you in his image in this way? When you give things, do you see it as a true gift that you have fully let go of? Or do you expect something in return? That will not resolve conflict. That's giving to control. That's giving to hold something over someone's head. But Christ says, give to the one who begs from you. In Luke 6, he says, give and expect nothing in return. If we're going to become these kinds of generous people, it starts with giving. You don't become generous and then give. You become generous because you have given. Over and over and over, your heart becomes trained. When you give something away, your heart begins to learn. When you survive the next day, I didn't need that the way I thought I did. And then you do it again and you go, I, I'm actually receiving joy because they're benefiting from something that I thought I needed and I'm realizing I don't need it. And I can help them. I can generously give things away. We become generous by giving and giving and giving, expecting nothing in return. Actually giving to those that would expect us to fight back from, to them. So this, these illustrations span from a person who slaps you, don't slap them back. Don't respond to an insult with another insult. And then here at the end, he's actually saying, hey, the the kind of person who would beg from you, the kind of person who would slap you, the kind of evil person that's gonna come after you and wrong you, that you're gonna be in conflict with, not only am I telling you don't slap them, maybe consider how you ought to give to them or what you ought to give to them. That's one thing that Augustine points out 1,600 years ago. It doesn't say give to the one who begs from you what they ask from you. We know that even from the book of Acts, Right? Peter and John going to the temple and they look at the man begging and they say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. So I don't think he's saying if anybody asks anything from you ever and they're begging, you have to give them exactly what they're asking for. 
again, applying wisdom, he's saying, are we the kind of people who would even be willing to give to our enemies, to evil people, to people who've done wrong? Not to enable them in their evil, but to bear witness to the one who can redeem them out of their evil. In this passage, Jesus is setting out a lifestyle of how to respond when we're wronged, which is very specific, right? This is not one of those generic, let's love Jesus more messages. This is very specific. How do we respond when we're wronged? But then, in a way only Jesus can, he sets out to live this perfectly. He was wronged more than anyone else to ever walk the earth, yet he endured it. He gave up his rights. He despised the shame that he received. He went to the cross to suffer. And not just endure pain, but endure pain to the point of death. And now he has risen from the dead and he lives to forever give generously to us, the ones who beg from him. But now he's inviting us to follow him and learn to live in this way. My prayer for us in this passage is that Christ would be formed in us and that Jesus, this Jesus, would be lived out through you and your unique personality, your unique world, where he's put you in your family. There is no one else like you. And Jesus is going to be formed in your heart to live these principles out, that you really can respond to wrongs with humility and not revenge. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for your word that you would speak so specifically to something that is so difficult for us. I confess this morning, whether it's in my marriage or even with my kids, who I love, that when I feel wronged, I want to exact revenge. I want to punish those who wrong me. I want to squash those who are evil towards me, but God, I pray that you'd give me a tender heart to recognize it takes patience and grace and gentleness to really fix the evil in the world. If all it took was force to fix the problems with this world, you would have not sent a gentle and lowly savior. You would have sent a conquering and mighty army. And we can rest assured that you will do that. So however upset we are when we're wronged and there's injustice done against us individually, help us to remember that this passage is about just that, being wronged individually. This is not saying we shouldn't protect our family. It's not saying we shouldn't protect those we love. It's not saying we shouldn't stand up for justice. We know we should, but it's saying personally, are you willing to have a low posture, to humble yourself and recognize it might take patience to see people change. But Jesus, our hope is that we know there's going to be evil remain in the world. We know there's going to be people who continue to do wrong, who continue to take advantage, who continue to slap and insult and sue and beg and try to take advantage of people. But one day you will return as the conquering lion of Judah to put all evil in its proper place once and for all. But until that day comes, we want to walk in the way of the Lamb who was led to the slaughter silently, Isaiah 53 tells us. Jesus, you're going to have to give us wisdom to apply this to our life. 
This is not as black and white as I'd like it to be. So would you please help us? In Jesus' name we pray. We rest in your love. Amen. We are now going to take the Lord's table. We're going to come and take the bread and the cup to celebrate exactly what we've talked about this morning. That Christ was led to the cross. He endured death for you. Because he loves you individually. You, He loves you. He likes you even. And he died so that you could have life and have life with him. He died the death you should have died so that you can live his life with him. So as we come to the table this morning, uh, I pray we'd come humbly. I pray we'd come, like 1 Corinthians says, confessing our sin. And if you don't know Jesus, then I pray this morning you'd come to Jesus to place your faith in him for the very first time. And in prayer, you would tell him you recognize you're separated from him and only Jesus can give you life. Receive his love in your heart this morning for the very first time. And if you know Christ, come and celebrate his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. Let me pray over the Lord's table and then I'm gonna invite you to come. It's gonna be a moment of silence and then we will sing one last song together. Jesus You tell us by doing this, we're proclaiming your death until you come. And that is exactly what we want to do this morning. Thank you for your body broken for us. We with broken bodies take this this morning, celebrating that though your body was broken, it was resurrected. And that we have broken bodies this morning and we can hope that we will be resurrected as well. Thank you for this blood that you shed for us to justify us from our sin, to pay the penalty that we don't have to die for our sins anymore. We can rest in your love, Jesus. I pray that taking this and seeing everyone else take this would stir us to greater faith and love and trust in you in Jesus' name.